Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump toying with the idea of Ramaswamy as his running mate because Ramaswamy said Trump was the greatest American president for a generation. Joining us to discuss the Republican presidential candidate rising in the polls as others languish is Jacob Silverman, a contributing writer for The New Republic and a contributing editor for The Baffler, covering tech and national security. He is the author of Terms of Service, Social Media and the Price of Constant Connection, and his latest book, an instant New York Times bestseller, co-authored with Ben McKenzie, is Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud. He also blogs at jacobsilverman.com, where he has a recent article, The Rapid Ascent of Vivek Ramaswamy, and we will investigate Ramaswamy's business practices and claim to be an outsider while cultivating ties as an insider. Then we'll look into the 2024 campaign as a referendum on American racism, which has been revived by Trump and DeSantis and is now in the open, motivating young white supremacists to kill black people. Joining us is Jason Stanley, the Jacob Uraski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and the author of How Propaganda Works, which was the winner of the 2016 Prose Award for Philosophy. His latest book is How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, and we'll discuss his article at The Guardian, The Racist Florida Shooter's Ideology Extends to Ordinary People. Then finally, we'll speak with Ananya Kalahasti, a researcher at the Revolving Door Project, who has previously worked for federal government offices, campaigns and advocacy groups, most recently working in healthcare legislative work and with Asian American civic engagement groups. We will discuss her article at the American Prospect, Who's Running Big Pharma's Last Stand Against Slightly Fairer Drug Pricing, and how lawsuits from Big Pharma could result in the corporate-friendly Supreme Court overturning the lowering of prescription drugs just announced by the Biden White House. And joining us now is Jacob Silverman, a contributing writer for The New Republic and a contributing editor at The Baffler, covering tech and national security. He's the author of Terms of Service, Social Media and the Price of Constant Connection. And his latest book, an instant New York Times bestseller, co-authored with Ben McKenzie, is Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism and the Golden Age of Fraud. And he also blogs at jacobsilverman.com, where he has a recent article, The Rapid Ascent of Vivek Ramaswamy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jacob Silverman. Thank you for having me. So uh, you, Jacob, uh, earlier on in your career, you worked for Ramaswamy's uh, biotech company, Royvent Sciences. He had to sign an NDA. And I'm wondering, you know, as far as I can tell, I don't know what the company did, but it looks like he cashed out quite a bit. And uh, Is there anything left of the company? What, what's the status of it now? Sure. Uh, yeah. Thank you for mentioning the NDA, because I just have to say, while I did work at the company for a couple of months, um, the things I talk about are all uh, things I learned from outside sources or after I left. But uh, Royvent still exists. It, it is a because it is a biotech company, I would argue that has kind of a longer runway or time frame than most other startups, because uh, drugs do take a long time to develop. Their main um, sort of premise of the company was that they would kind of apply um, a private equity or finance approach to drug development. So they would um, you, they would buy drugs that had been left on the shelf by other pharma companies, perhaps because they um, were too expensive to test or they didn't seem promising early on. 
And then they would conduct those those trials in order to try to bring those drugs to market and eventually get approval. Um, they've had a few approved, but the company, I would say, is not uh, taken off the way that you know it, it might have projected to be. They have made some very strategic deals with existing pharma companies that have helped inject a lot of money into the company and, frankly, I think helped uh, Vivek to cash out. Well, that's what I wonder about this guy. I mean, I found his appearance in the first Republican presidential primary debate really unsettling. I just thought to myself, my God, we've had years and years of having to put up with Trump and he simply won't go away. And he's now way ahead and could be reelected president. And then they'd have him for another four years. And this guy isn't even entertaining in a, in a sort of sick way that Trump is. He's kind of annoying. Uh, do you <laughs> he think he does have a Harvard debate kid kind of vibe? Some people have said, right? But it looks as though he's just sort of <laughs> unbelievably ambitious. Uh, yes. but doesn't seem to be anchored on, in any kind of. He seems as though he would do or say anything to get ahead. What's your impression? Yeah, I tend to agree with that assessment. I mean, I would say Vivek is very smart. I'm sorry, there's some birds near me that decide to start quacking. But Vivek is very smart and extremely ambitious. Um, you know, I have to say that I've, I've spoken to people who worked at Roy Vant, who they they see him as very ambitious, but they don't necessarily recognize the, the Vivek who's... Uh, saying there are only two genders and is seems very right-wing and kind of uh, would-be fascist firebrand, it seems. Um, that is, I think, a different perso persona, perhaps, than he had as a biotech and finance guy. I think he's always tended to be uh, somewhat uh, right-of-center, libertarian, perhaps, but, you know, there's a clip going around right now of him asking a question of Jesse Jackson about his political experience uh, during a, a, a previous... Um, campaign cycle. You know, there are ways in which Vivek in the past has has seemed certainly more flexible in his ideas, I think. In a book he published last year, he, he criticized Donald Trump, saying he supported him, but he lost the election and he should basically go home. And now he's positioned himself as the number one dyed-in-the-wool supporter of Trump, as you saw during that debate. So I think there's little doubt that he moves where he sees an advantage in his beliefs and in what he'll say. Well, you're just referring to his 10 truths, uh, which he touts on the campaign trail. God is real, there are two genders, and the nuclear family is the greatest form of governance known to mankind. That sort of sounds a little like he's pandering to the evangelical wing of the GOP. By the way, Trump, on Glenn Beck's program last night, praised Ramaswamy and sort of entertained the idea of him being a uh, vice president on the Trump ticket, largely because... <laughs> Ramaswamy said nice things about Trump, that he was the greatest president in a generation. So that's what it takes, right, to become vice president. Just suck I up the, he, the big yeah, guy. I'm sorry. I think he knows what he's doing. Uh, and, and again, I, I disagree with him on probably every policy he's put forward. But I think, again, I, I think Vivek is smart and cunning and and he's been extraordinarily successful He's really risen through the meritocracy of Harvard, Yale Law School, um, all these sorts of organizations. He even got a fellowship from uh, the Soros Foundation. I, um, so, while he didn't, he he grew up, I think, middle the son the son of middle class professionals uh, who are immigrants from India. He has done an extraordinary job at uh, basically networking his way to a, a very elite level of power and now attention. 
Uh, you know, he was very rich before he started this campaign, but he wasn't very well known. But he was very connected to people like Peter Thiel and J.D. Vance and Jared Kushner. And um, and now that he's come more to the forefront, he, he Trump seems to like him and he's gotten the blessing of Rupert Murdoch. He's actually the, the second most covered candidate on Fox News after Trump. So his latest uh, venture, Strive, which Peter Thiel and uh, J.D. Vance have invested in, it's a sort of hedge fund that's against environment social governance, the ESG. And what he's done, though, is, which seems fairly clever, he's cultivated state financial offices across the country, particularly in conservative states like Alaska, Florida, Indiana, Missouri, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Texas, and Utah, and West Virginia, to get these state officials in charge of pension funds to invest in his venture. Um, right. And, I mean, that seems, you know, and, of course, he's using this crusade against ESG investing and pitching uh, fossil fuels as the, the savior of the planet when everybody else recognizes that it's killing us. So what do you make of that? I think... Again, the the anti-ESG, just like the anti-woke stuff he's taken on. I mean, he had a book with something, a title called something like Woke Inc. Um, I, I think it is somewhat opportunistic, and I think he sees a lane there that, um, you know, I, it's funny. Because to me, even when large corporations are supposedly pursuing ESG goals, I don't think of them as liberal actors or necessarily good for the environment and things like that. They're st still huge corporate uh, concerns, profit-driven. But um, it, it ha that demonization of the ESG as, as akin to wokeness or something like that has been somewhat effective on the right, even though it's, it's a very murky definition. Um, on the other hand, as you say, you know, he's, he's glad to pitch all these state retirement funds because certainly there's money there. And there's a similar thing with Vivek in that um, he's, he's become very anti-China, like some people on the right are and some in the MAGA set. Yet when he ran Royvant, they had a, a subsidiary called Sinovant that was specifically devoted to doing business in China and had Chinese partners. So, um, you know, I, I think we need to keep that in mind that all this stuff kind of tends to be um, opportunistic, playing to certain audiences. And um, he is very, as you said, very well connected with um, some traditional right wing uh, plutocrats, I guess, like like Peter Thiel. So sometimes he may say one thing, at least this year as a politician, while ha having done much different things as a businessman. Well, the board, by the way, of uh, Royvant uh, had people from the Democratic establishment as well as Republicans. Kathleen Sebelius, US, the former U.S. Health Secretary under Barack Obama, Tom Daschle, former Democratic leader of the Senate, Olympia Snow, former Republican senator. Uh, but nowadays, he's cultivating ties with Leonard Leo, the kind of eminent of of dark money, who's got you know a couple of billion dollars that he's going to be deploying for far right wing causes and stacking the federal judiciary. He's already got what almost six of the the entire six uh, right wing majority on the Supreme Court as his proteges. So the guy can't claim to be an outsider who is not on the take. What did he say on the debate stage? Uh, not bought and paid for, right? I mean, <laughs> Which is a it's... little ridiculous. He said, um, yeah, and he's called the other people sort of slaves to their super PACs, but he has a super PAC. It just hasn't had as much money in it as some of the others. And, yeah, the sense that he's an outsider, I think, is a little silly. 
as we've talked about just on this interview here, he is very well connected in sort of traditional networks of power and politics. I mean, the fact that we're only now hearing about him, or some people are, uh, doesn't change that. I mean, this this is uh, he's this is how he's risen in life for the last twenty years, ever since he he was an undergraduate at Harvard, I'd say. And so, um, you know, and he's been on Fox actually for the last couple of years, especially on Tucker Carlson's show, and really has tried to appeal to the sort of Tucker Carlson and MAGA Trump wing of the party. I think he, he sees a role there for himself, um, whether it is as VP. I wonder if Trump would want someone who, who's frankly somewhat charismatic as VP. But, you know, the other day, Matt Gates, the congressman from Florida, said he should be Trump's chief of staff. Um, I think that there's a strong possibility if he doesn't end up in some sort of Trump cabinet, if Trump is elected, that he could run for governor of Ohio in 2026. That's the state he's from. And so that's one reason why I wrote this piece. You know, I don't see Vivek as just someone who's going to be a fly by night uh, sort of, out, um, you know, remember that guy who ran for president type candidate. I think he is someone who's going to stick around for, for the reasons we've talked about. Right. But uh, do you think, though, because I find him so irritating, do you think he's going to last? I mean, he's he's so rampantly ambitious and yeah. fast talking huckster. It's just, an, I guess, I, I find him annoying, and I'm just wonder, <laughs> wondering whether other people will find him annoying. Um, I think a lot of people do, frankly. I mean, he, he does have, a, he overflows with confidence, and there is a lot about him, I think, that could be alienating, especially to Democratic voters. But the sort of bitter reactionary politics that he's expressing, I think, do have fans on the right. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be in a certain bubble or, or something like that, but some of the conservatives that I follow, especially people in tech or crypto, uh, that kind of world, they like him and and they like his attitude and sort of his uh, angry sensibility and his his kind of polished Trumpishness, you might say, in terms of his political alignment. I think some people think he, he's out over his skis. And I mean, he has said some things that don't quite make sense um, or has some policies that alienate people like, um, you know, cutting aid to Israel. Some people on the right don't like that. Uh, but. Um, you know, as, as as repulsive as some of his policies strike some folks, I, I have been surprised. He, he has uh, a certain constituency that I think is still dependent on Trump uh, moving out of the way. But if Trump is uh, uh, put in jail or passes away because of his age, uh, I think Vivek will be there waiting. So what's next for him then? It looks as though Governor DeSantis is putting all these eggs into the Iowa basket is uh, almost like he's running for president of Iowa. But uh, Ramaswamy is closing in on him in terms of the polls. How do you see his pathway, Ramaswamy's pathway here? Because he's uh, probably before long, if, as expected, DeSantis will fade because he won't, he won't win Iowa, even though he's put all his resources into it. And he's had to cut his staff now, and um, he looks like a loser. So I'm assuming that Ramaswamy would be number two, right, in before long. He could be. I do wonder how he'll sort of thread the needle with being this very pro-Trump guy. And then once the sort of campaign kicks off in earnest, you know, they're facing Trump. He hasn't had to face Trump on a debate stage yet, but he is <laughs> going to have to say, well, why am I, why should we choose him or why should Republicans choose him uh, over Trump? And that may get a little testy. You know, is Trump going to start turning his fire to Ramaswamy? Um, will they make some kind of deal uh, where he sort of drops out, but perhaps is acknowledged as some, as some 
uh, future power player in the party. I don't really know. I think that's where it gets curious. Um, I don't see him staying in until the end, of course, but I think he very well might stay through uh, a couple of primary states because uh, he's very serious about this. And also there's just even with the Trump awkwardness, there's not a lot of downside. I mean, certainly Trump demonstrated that. But, you know, uh, Ramaswamy is already far more famous than he was a few months ago. He sold some books and he's being recognized by people like Elon Musk, who maybe hadn't known who he was before. So um, in that sense, I think also because of the weakness of, De- of DeSantis, I expect him to stay in for a little while, at least. Right. But could he run as Trump's vice president, not confront him, but uh, suck up to yeah. him? It's very possible. I think Trump is more likely to choose sort of a, a Carrie Lake or a, a Marjorie Taylor Greene type. But um or, or Again, uh, RFK Jr., who's also I angling. That's possible, too. I think the, the question remains, does Trump see uh, Ramaswamy as someone he can work with, or, he, or is he sort of a threat to his cult of personality because he does have some charisma? I mean, he's certainly way behind Trump, of course, in the polling, and, and some challenges lay ahead. He doesn't have the name recognition. Certainly there are people on the right who won't want to vote for a brown-skinned Hindu man. But, um, you know, I, I think how they kind of get along and... and uh, vibe with each other, uh, to use sort of a current word, um, I think that will, will have a lot to say uh, about how this all might proceed and where Vivek fits in that future of the party and in, you know, in sort of the, the Trump, what is still Trump's kingdom. Um, but, uh, you know, things might happen. He might go to jail, uh, uh, Trump that is, of course. And, uh, and if he does, I think all bets are off then. I mean, I don't know what happens uh, to the Republican Party or who might be the nominee. Uh, I'd say at that point, Vivek has as good a chance as anyone. He's already promised to pardon him, so um, pardon Trump. But um, just in closing then, I guess that the reason why one could surmise that Trump might end up in jail, I think, is largely because of Jack Smith's January the 6th case, which is is now going to start on March the 4th. And I think that one is really solid, legally speaking, don't you think? And... It could, what you just described, him, Trump being in jail, is not too far-fetched. Yeah, it seems like an incredible possibility, to be frank. Um, but, you know, we are far closer to it than we were a few months ago. He's been, he's charged with a number of serious crimes uh, in, in several jurisdictions. And I'm sure the Republicans, you know, right now they're trying to, I think, defund some of the prosecutors. But, you know... For the first time ever, pretty much, a, a president might go to jail, and there's good reason to think he would. And uh, it's uncharted territory, but um, certainly when Ramaswamy was on stage the other night, I think the other, while he had some annoying moments of pedantry and things like that, he still is capable of kind of um, more personality and charisma than most of those other people on stage. And DeSantis didn't really look very impressive either, so... Um, that's why I, I think we do need to pay attention to him and, and take him more seriously than simply, you know, some outsider candidate who's just passing through. Well, Jacob Silverman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the 2024 campaign as a referendum on American racism, which has been revived by Trump and DeSantis and is now in the open motivating young white supremacists to kill black people. Oh, yes, I'm the great pretender. Adrift in a 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jason Stanley, the Jacob Urowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and the author of How Propaganda Works, which was the winner of the 2016 Prose Award for Philosophy. His latest book is How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. And he has an article at The Guardian, The Racist Florida Shooter's Ideology Extends to Ordinary People. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jason Stanley. Thank you so much, Ian. It's always good to be in conversation with you. Well, thanks, uh, Jason. We have yet to learn about the manifesto from this uh, Ryan Palmetto, the 21-year-old gunman who killed three African-Americans deliberately in a racist attack using an assault rifle with a swastikas painted on it uh, last Saturday. But your article points out that uh, last year's shooting in Buffalo, New York, where an 18-year-old Peyton Gendron killed 10 people, his ideology, um, he laid it out, and he laid it out in Q&A form. And I'll just quote for, briefly from it from your article at The Guardian. Are you a fascist? Yes, fascism is one of the only political ideologies that will unite whites against the replacers. Since that is what I seek, calling me a fascist would be accurate. Question, are you a white supremacist? Answer, yes. I would call myself a white supremacist. After all, which race is responsible for the world we live in today? I believe the white race is superior in the brain to all other races. Are you a racist? Yes, I'm a racist because I believe in differences of capabilities between two races. So what I don't understand, Jason, is that given this mentality, which is widely shared, and that's what your article is about, why is it then that white supremacists who feel that they're superior, why are they so afraid of minorities and particularly blacks in this country. You would think that if you were superior, therefore you wouldn't be threatened. You'd sort of be able to look down on other people and even if you had some decency, be magnanimous. So why does white supremacy create fear when it's based upon the idea that you're a superior race? (laughs) Great question, Ian. And I think that there must be some psychoanalytic answer uh, for this. I mean, uh, how coherent is the doctrine? Uh, it's it, When you look at these manifestos, uh, and a lot of them repeat each other, uh, for instance, the question and answer style is, is familiar from the New Zealand shooters manifesto, and I think Anders Brevik as well, the Norwegian shooter. Uh, but 
you know, th th there's not a whole, there's not a full amount of internal coherence. And I think, you know, you're asking me to speculate about the psychology. It's usually, uh, they're afraid of being numerically uh, outnumbered, uh, and but your question still remains. If you're truly superior, why do you care about being numerically outnumbered? Well, I don't understand, though, and again, Ryan Palmetto, the latest shooter, the 21-year-old, he apparently spent the last... He's a, he's a dropout from school. He spent the last couple of years in his bedroom in his parents' home. And at the last minute, of course, before he went on this shooting spree, he did contact his parents with a kind of suicide note, and they quickly called law enforcement officials but were too late to stop him. I don't understand, though, what goes on with parents, and, the, and particularly the parents of Gendron in Buffalo. They apparently were, were white liberals, and yet somehow parents can't either detect or deal with this pathology of their kids that, you know, who by most descriptions look like they were losers. In fact, isn't that the kind of strain within white supremacy that the people who take up arms and, and embrace that ideology basically are a bunch of losers? I don't think that's right at all, because I think the idea, I don't think Donald Trump is a loser. Uh, I don't think Ron, Governor DeSantis is a loser. Uh, I mean, I think it, I think they're the concept. well. They're the leaders, though, Jason. I'm talking about the followers. Uh, well, I think I think the concept we need here is Du Bois's concept of the psychological wages of whiteness, where Du Bois says that just being white gives you a kind of psychological, you know, a psychological boost equivalent to being paid more. It gives you a kind of pride. The great white men. Uh, the founders were great white men. I'm white. When you have very little, all you have are the psychological wages of your skin color. So I think that's what uh, the key is. So Du Bois was trying to explain why poor whites end up doing what rich whites say, say. In other words, why poor whites will sacrifice their own class interests, for instance, in a labor movement in order to follow the dictates of wealthy white industrialists uh, who are just using them, frankly, uh, by appealing to their whiteness. Uh, and Du Bois's answer was the psychological wages of whiteness. It's that even if you're a poor white person, you still have whiteness. And that's how rich white, white people like a Yale and Harvard grad like DeSantis can manipulate you. Well, indeed, uh, Ian Haney Lopez has written about these dog whistle politics, and he extends the argument into the American plutocracy. And that's how the right wing plutocrats in this country cynically manipulate people so that they won't recognize their class interests and what they have in common. And that, in effect, racism is deliberately inflamed. Right. So this is Ian Haney Lopez's race class project, where... Uh, where, and I think it's absolutely right that uh, uh, race is used as a way, as a power uh, way to get poor people to identify with rich people of the same race uh, and against uh, other poor people of their race. Uh, so to destroy their class interests. And this is central to fascism as well. It's why 
Hitler rails against trade unions in, uh, in Mein Kampf because trade unions unified people along the lines of class interests rather than race interests. So this is a this is an international thing that you know race should bond and not class and and uh, the what we've seen is folks like Ron DeSantis, uh, Trump, many uh, many the Clintons did this too. Uh, many uh, politicians have used race uh, as a way to win. Uh, white, uh, some whites over who honestly should be voting along with their class interests instead if they care about things like the weekend, health care, a better life for their children, etc. So let's talk about Trump as the uh, leading racist in this country. And prior to Trump, it wasn't fashionable to be openly racist. And that's Trump's great contribution is to bring out people from under a rock and give them permission to be racist again. And it's been put on steroids by DeSantis, who's now conducted his war on woke, which is an extension of what Trump did um, with his Bertha conspiracy, which was actually hatched in uh, the Nobu restaurant in Moscow in November 2013, when Trump expected to meet with Putin, but instead Putin sent his Siloviki, his former KGB buddies uh, who are billionaires, and they sat down with Trump and gave him his marching orders to come back to the United States and exploit racial divisions, which is always what KGB propaganda during the Cold War was all about. Not that (laughs) they weren't inaccurate in describing American racism, but they're also exploiting the divisions. And along with a a Russian emigre in Orange County, Orly Tays, Thus began the Bertha conspiracy, which Trump then launched his presidential campaign based on attacking Obama as a Kenyan who wasn't even an American. So given that prior to Trump, racism was not fashionable, is there any way to go back or are we we on this other trajectory, as I mentioned, since Trump, you know, DeSantis is running against Trump on the right. So he's put racism on steroids with his war on woke. Right. So you're asking a very profound question about dog whistle politics and what Tali Mendelberg, the Princeton political scientist, calls the norm of racial equality. So Mendelberg argues. So there's, of course, this famous quote from Lee Atwater, George Bush, who did the Willie Horton ad, the most racist ad in recent history uh, for George Bush senior where he said, it used to be you could just say the N-word, uh, then you had to, uh, then then you could like go after busing, uh, but now it's gotten so, uh, now it's now it ha- you have to be so subtle, I forget exactly the quote, you have to be so subtle, uh, you have to go after, say, I'm gonna t- cut your taxes, and of course, federal programs help black Americans more, uh, uh, he said, uh, and so you have this indirect way of signaling, or at least that's what people believe. So you have this indirect way of signaling uh, your racist intent. But now we have much more direct ways of signaling racist intent. Politicians are much more direct about it. Um, so, so you, I think, I think there's a difference. So there's one question there. Can you go back to the the norm of racial equality? The norm of racial equality, as Mendelberg puts it, says you pay a political price if you're con- perceived as openly racist. 
Um, Trump destroyed that. Um, however, I think Trump, uh, DeSantis is a different character than Trump. I think one reason Trump got away with it is everyone thought he was playing with fascism. So he had a kind of sense of humor about it. Now, in fact, when he came into office, he in fact implemented those policies. So you shouldn't have ever thought it was just a joke. But I think DeSantis is a true believer. Uh, he is, you know, he is a fa more classical fascist. He's not not just doing this for power. Uh, he's a fascist <laughs> and he wants to come in and use state power uh, to crush his opponents. <laughs> right, and slit the throats of government bureaucrats. Exactly, exactly. So I think, and I think he believes in it. You know, I mean, unlike other fascists, he's not some, uh, you know, he's, a, he's, he's not, he's, he's an elite, he's a super elite. I mean, I went to SUNY Stony Brook. This is a guy who went to Yale and then Harvard Law. He's the, uh, he's the Ivy League elite we're talking. Ted Cruz and him are, are the elites, the elite of the elite. Uh, and so, Josh Hawley too, yeah. Josh Hawley, these are these are the elite, and uh, and that deserves its own program. Why are the elites taking us along this road? Uh, but um, but the, but I think like he's an elite who believes in, uh, you know, he's he's just a, you know, he's he's he he is a white supremacist. He is uh, a homophobe. You know, a homophobe is too light for what he is. He's a he's a very um, you know, he's he's a serious threat to LGBT equality. Uh, so, uh, you know, by banning uh, representations of same-sex couples, he's making in schools, he's making children of same-sex couples think of themselves as freaks. Uh, for for Trump, I think inside it's always transactional. It's always, I mean, Trump. Trump admitted the first transgender woman woman to Miss Universe, <laughs> you know, and was interviewed about it and said, "Yeah, she's great." Why? You know, uh, I mean, it's very everything cynical with him. I'm not sure in the end it makes a difference, but uh, but I don't know if DeSantis is oh sort of open, very clear, very how do you say it? Um, a rape can you know? It's not possible to look at DeSantis and be like, "Oh, he's only kidding," right? Um, well, the good news is, of course, he's 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 a terrible retail politician because he doesn't like people and he's awkward and he's not doing well. But the guy that's replacing him, rising in the polls, is <laughs> we were just discussing him in the earlier segment, Ramaswamy. He's also pretty hideous too. No, I know we have. You know, the problem is Trump created this thing where. It's just a race to the right, to the far right, to the fascist right. And so, you know, it's it's just a terrible moment because the only way you can break out of the Republican field is by being more fascist than the other guy. So uh, so that's the situation we face. We just we can. I mean, I think that um, those two candidates uh do have, uh, you know, are genuine fascists. I think Trump is a fascist. Uh, he is a fascist, but, you know, he's just out for his own individual power. He wants to stay out of prison, etc. cetera. Right. Uh, I don't think but, he believes the racist but he's, al idea. but he's always been a racist. I mean, his latest uh, reincarnation of the N-word is calling uh, the prosecutors and others uh, that are against him and putting him on trial 
he called them riggers. So right. uh, that's inescapable. What that's he right. was exactly. that dog whistle, right? Yeah, I, I mean Trump. Trump has always been uh, a kind of northeastern style racist, uh, using those tropes, using uh, you know Giuliani as well. Uh, so those are that's that's exactly right. They the, he he is a racist as well. But we can't ignore the fact that Trump specifically. Uh, has a growing number of specific black male supporters. Uh, so that has to be put into into one's theory of what's going on. I think one can't forget patriarchy here. Uh, no. Well, and, he had uh, Thanksgiving and, dinner with Kanye West, and Kanye West brought along this young Nazi as a guest, Fu- right. Nick Fuentes. So, Nick, right. No, right. I mean, we're seeing more and more of these new right, actual, actual, very explicit fascists uh, in the Republican Party. We had, of course, Nate Hochman get booted out for from the DeSantis campaign for doing a vin- video with a Sonnenrad with an explicit Nazi symbol. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, I think these are characters that are actually more, much more explicitly fascist, uh, and so we're seeing them gain more and more say within the Republican Party. Uh, Richard Hanania is is another one. Uh, So we have all of, we have a kind of uh, intellectual brain trust of racists to go along with these populist populist racists. And I hope the country takes it more seriously uh, than they have so far. And I think you see the patriarchy element, by the way, in exactly this kind of loner mass shooter type. the loner mass shooter uh, is when we say loser, we're often talking about incels, right? Uh, involuntary celibate men uh, and the kind of rage and anger that goes along with that. So what's going to stop, though, the normalization of hate and hate speech and racism? I mean, I'm sure you've been getting hate mail. I mean, I just a few days ago on uh, Thursday, August the 24th, through my website where the radio show is posted. Listeners can call right in. And somebody called Paul wrote in on the subject line, Jews, message, aren't you scared you're going to be gassed again? <laughs> I mean, that's, I can't say it, it bothers me, but it bothers me in a broader sense that this is going on in this country and it's becoming normalized. I've received hate mail for many, many years now uh, and I'm inured to it. I don't want to invite more. But we're talking about a country in which ne- the Speaker of the House, a man showed up with a hammer at the Speaker of the House's house uh, to kill her and uh, and encountered her 80 plus year old husband and said and hit him in the head with a hammer and nobody blinked. So we're getting very used to real political violence in this country when that happens. And it's not like it doesn't give anyone pause and didn't give anyone pause. You know, the country is ready for some serious political violence. And that's what, you know, just looking transnationally and historically, that's what I expect. Well, none other than Sarah Palin suggested that it was coming and inevitable. And she endorsed it and felt it was justified because of the terrible treatment of Trump. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> Again, this phony billionaire, privileged life, has been able to turn himself into a martyr. Uh, 
uh, and create this massive grievance machine. So just in closing, yeah. is there any way that 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 bubble can be burst? I mean, that's the purpose of these trials, I think, to put him on trial. Finally, the rule of law is trying to assert itself. Whether or not it will win, I don't know, because we have one entire political party that's embraced fascism, doesn't believe in election results, and uh, spurns the rule of law. Absolutely. We were facing the end of this, you know, any semblance of the rule of law. Uh, and it's, you know, you look at Putin's Russia for the worst case of where it could go. Um, but yeah, the rule of law, there's no respect. You delegitimize, the fascist party has delegitimized the institutions. Uh, so people don't don't trust the courts anymore. Uh, and uh, even the court appointees of Trump. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so how to reinstill faith in the rule of law, how to deal with grievance politics. Uh, fascism is always grievance politics. Uh, it always, the leaders are always incredibly aggrieved and somehow manage to channel, channel their supporters' grievances into a kind of personal quest for their own redemption. So the, the leader's success becomes the supporter's success. And that's what we're seeing with Trump in a very classical way. So, uh, and that's what we're seeing in the Republican Party with each candidate trying to show they have more grievances than the next. So uh, with all of them being, you know, staggeringly wealthy or elite Ivy League school grads. So um, how to deal with grievance politics is a tricky thing. I think the Biden administration tried to do it by sending a lot of money to uh, to Americans. Um, you know, they try to deal deal with it with student debt. Basically, you deal with it by making people more financially comfortable. Uh, the Republicans block that for a reason. They don't want people to be financially comfortable. They want people to be anxious so they can be responsive to grievance politics. Well, Jason Stanley, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jason Stanley, who's a Jacob Uraski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and the author of How Propaganda Works, which was the winner of the 2016 Prose Award for Philosophy. His latest book is How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. And he has an article at The Guardian, The Racist Florida Shooter's Ideology Extends to Ordinary People. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how Big Pharma, with help from the corporate-friendly Supreme Court, could overturn the lowering of prescription drug prices just announced by the Biden White House. The deputy sheriffs, the soldiers, the governors get paid. And the marshals and cops get the same. But the poor white man's used in the hands of them all like a tool. He's taught in his school From the start by the rule That the laws are with him To protect his white skin To keep up his heat So he never thinks straight About the shape that he's in but
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. Joining us now is Ananya Kalahasti, who's a researcher at the Revolving Door Project, who has previously worked in federal government offices, campaigns, and advocacy groups, most recently working in healthcare legislative work and with Asian American civic engagement groups. And she has an article at the American Prospect, Who's Running Big Pharma's Last Stand Against Slightly Fairer Drug Pricing? Welcome to Background Briefing. Ananya Kalahasti. Thank you so much, Ian, for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Ananya. And uh, there's a certain amount of celebration going on, particularly the White House, about, and, uh, and they published the list of the first 10 drugs that Medicare will be able to bargain with Big Pharma to reduce the prices for, through bulk buying. Many of them are, of course, of well-known drugs taken for diabetes, heart problems, uh, Di- uh, um, a, a, you know, a range of ailments that afflict largely seniors in this country who depend upon these drugs, which, of course, are they're able to get them because of the 2002 giveaway to Big Pharma during the George W. Bush administration through um, Medicare Plan D, which essentially the IRA is undoing. So... I'm just concerned, and certainly you are, that maybe the celebrations are premature because the drug companies are fighting back through lawyers and uh, they may end up having a very sympathetic Supreme Court. So give us a breakdown on where you think we stand in terms of whether or not the promises made yesterday at the White House are actually going to come to pass. Yeah, absolutely. So like you mentioned, pharma companies are really pulling out all the stops. Um, They're filing lawsuits in a number of different courts across the country. There are six pharmaceutical companies and two industry groups that have all filed suit on some version of the claim that any government negotiation or involvement in pricing for pharmaceuticals is unconstitutional. So whether it's that companies no longer have the ability to set their own prices and to market at a fair rate, or it's that they're going to face undue financial burdens if they are no longer able to charge whatever they want to. Um, What's interesting is that none of these price changes go into effect for a few more years. So there's no hard evidence that any of these companies are going to suffer financially significantly come 2026 when any of these pricing regulations go into effect. Right now, we only know what drugs are potentially up for negotiate or what drugs are up for negotiation and have some predictions of how much those profits might change for pharmaceutical companies. But they're definitely pulling out all the stops. Uh, There are a number of Trump administration, former solicitor generals, a deputy assistant attorney general, um, a couple Supreme Court clerks, and a number of law firms who have been involved in previous litigation that are fully in on supporting pharma and their crusade to ensure that this negotiation process never happens. So the drugs selected for price negotiation, Eliquis, Jardians, Zeralto, Genevia, Fasiga, Entresto, Embril, Imbrovica, Stellara, Fiasp, and Novolog. A lot of these drugs, of course, you know because they advertise on television all the time, pushing drugs. I mean, literally, they're, they're drug pushers, uh, these big yeah. companies. And there are six pharmaceutical manufacturers, Estella Pharma, Astra, AstraZeneca, Boehringer, Ingelheim. Bristol Myers Squibb, Johnson and Johnson, and Merck—they're—they're they're suing the Biden administration. And by the way, delaying this to 2026, the implementation—I'm mystified by that. But we can certainly talk about that. But there's also another suit 
which is coming from the Drug Industries Main Trade Group and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So let's start with why is it why did they delay this to 2026, having made the announcement yesterday that these 10 drugs are, are going to be cheaper, but they're not going to be cheaper until after 2026, assuming the Biden administration, one, is re-elected, because if they're not re-elected, the Republicans will drop this like a hotcake. And two, if they are re-elected, you won't get the price break until 2026. Yeah, so the way that the IRA structured uh, this broad policy is that the first list of drugs gets announced this year, a year after the passage of the IRA. Um, Negotiations on those drugs start next year in 2024, and then there's a two-year negotiation prior to price effects taking change in 2026. And every year they add a couple more drugs. So this year there was a list of 10 announced. Next year there'll be another 15 announced for when price changes kick in in 2027 and so on for the next handful of years. So the hopeful goal is that by the time we hit 2028, 2029, there are roughly 80 drugs that Medicare is able to negotiate, that they've gone through negotiations for, set fairer prices for, and both the federal government and individual consumers are seeing a significant shift in prices. But there is a little bit of a lag there. So we don't know right now how much those savings are actually going to be, how much those savings get passed on to consumers, how much any of those savings might hurt or change pharmaceutical companies' bottom lines. Um, And that's definitely something for us to watch in the next few years. Well, what we do know, though, Ananya, is that in a survey last year, 89% of Democrats and 70% of Republicans favor the provision in the Inflation Reduction Act that authorizes uh, Medicare to negotiate down the price of prescription drugs. So... We know that this is incredibly popular. So what troubles me is that the kind of plutocratic capture of the Supreme Court has benefited the Republicans in a way. For example, the abortion issue. You know, obviously there are people like Mike Pence who wear their Christianity on their sleeve. But in general, a lot of the Republicans are pretty uncomfortable about getting rid of women's bodily autonomy. But the Supreme Court, in effect, gives them cover. So all of the kind of nasty stuff that's in their agenda, they can have the Supreme Court do it. And, you know, basically say, well, you know, (laughs) we're just the piano player in the whorehouse, you know. So is there an element of that? In other words, given how popular this Biden initiative is, even with Republicans, 77% of them support it. Is this a tactic then to basically have the Supreme Court do the dirty work of the Republican Party? I think there's definitely a possibility that if these cases continue to escalate, that there is a chance that this gets struck down and a lot of members of the Republican Party are able to walk away without taking the correct blame for you know the several layers of legal strategy that they've helped contributed. Um, There wasn't a single Republican who voted for the IRA a year ago, so a lot of the party has really positioned itself as opposing this type of negotiation. And I mean, for a policy that's really, really popular amongst Americans, I think a couple polls recently reported that nearly a quarter of Americans can't afford their prescription drugs on a month-to-month basis. The vast majority of Americans support this provision, but even more broadly support some degree of government intervention to make prescription drugs more affordable. There's definitely a possibility that if these continue to escalate, that there is a little bit of a sidestep for the Republican Party to do in taking blame for the systematic 
tries that they've done to sort of wear down this policy. And I think another piece to keep in mind is that, you know, pharmaceutical companies are really pulling out all of those stops as well. I mean, we're talking about former Trump administration officials who've clearly positioned themselves as opposing the IRA. And I think for the Biden administration, it's important to sort of take back that narrative and making sure that they are adequately pinning the blame on particular Republican actors who have allowed us to get to this point, whether it's been in appointing judges or not holding judges accountable that they have appointed when it comes to financial conflicts of interest, or just in ensuring that, you know, the administration is reminding folks that this is a policy that's really popular and that the party and the administration has delivered on one of its key campaign promises back in 2020 to make sure that when they're going into upcoming election years or just in talking about the wins of the IRA, that they aren't letting pharmaceutical companies take over the narrative of this being an unconstitutional policy, which it likely is not. And I think many legal scholars report that these aren't necessarily founded lawsuits, um, but also in ensuring that, you know, they're really creating the successes that the IRA is seeing in terms of prescription drug negotiation and making sure that central part of the narrative that continues rather than letting pharma companies claim this to be unconstitutional and as something that will never take effect. And Merck and Bristol-Myers have two former clerks of Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch and of Justice Kavanaugh, right, working. Yes, um, that's correct. And they're all pretty fresh, too. They're fairly recent clerks, so, you know, their familiarity with what this current court looks like or what at least their former bosses look like can be potentially really helpful for a lot of big pharma cases. And on top of that, the judge who has the case Judge Thomas Rose, uh, George W. Bush appointed senior judge in the Southern District of Ohio. Um, he seems predisposed to Big Pharma. In his 2022 financial disclosure forms, it shows that he owes, owns significant amount of stock in Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, and AstraZeneca. That's correct. Yeah, he does. And both of those are lawsuits that have been filed, or both of those are drug companies that have filed lawsuits, AstraZeneca as well as... Uh, Johnson and Johnson. So, is there any way that you can get him recused because of his stock holdings in Big Farm at the same time, supposedly being impartial? Yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely going to be some calls for recusal on his part. Um, having a judge who has such clear financial incentives in his own personal benefit when it comes to holding significant stocks in pharmaceutical companies, I think, is an egregious conflict of interest and definitely impairs our ability to trust a judge like that with making decisions that are consistent with the law and in the interests of the American people rather than simply complying with whatever his own personal financial interests might be. So, Ananya, do you think then that that the Biden administration has a real fight on its hands. And I'm not sure that they, do they recognize it? Do they recognize that they've really got to pull out all the stops and get the American people to understand that this is something that the people want, but a small group of incredibly rich companies who, many of whom, by the way, are making money out of government subsidies for the drugs that they sell at prices higher than anywhere else in the world. And we've, you know, we've seen the activities of, of the Sackler family gives you this sense of this kind of a sociopathic kind of quality to the greed in big pharma. In the case of the Sacklers, of course, they were peddling death, uh, where the big pharma supposedly is all about saving lives, not causing deaths. But needless to say, Big Pharma is incredibly unpopular, but it seems like Biden's going to have to weaponize the public's attitude here to stop these people because they've got 
the power, the money, and they've got the connections on the Supreme Court. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct that, you know, there's a history of greed that comes with the pharmaceutical industry. A lot of these drugs, as well as others that, you know, charge Medicare very heavily are drugs that were developed with a strong assistance of public funding that is taxpayer dollars that we then handed patents to private pharmaceutical companies to then manufacture and then charge those same taxpayers insane amounts of money to be able to access life-saving medications. And I mean, in so many other peer countries, like European countries that have much stronger negotiation processes, these drugs are available to patients there for a fraction of the cost that they're charging American citizens to be able to access these medications. Um, but I do think it's true that the Biden administration does need to pull out a lot of stops to make sure that these lawsuits don't necessarily go forward. I mean, even if these lawsuits are relatively bogus and, you know, they're coming in forth on uh, parts of corrupt judges who are willing to take them seriously, even if the legal arguments within them aren't necessarily serious, I think the risk that any part of the IRA is struck down for this pharmaceutical negotiation program is a really big threat, and especially for a policy that is so popular across Americans that is really a cornerstone of the healthcare achievements that the administration has had since its inauguration, and especially in ensuring that, you know, after decades of big pharma really being able to stifle any control of their pricing in the government um, since the 2003 Medicare Modernization Act, I think it's really important that the administration is willing to pull out whatever stops they have, whatever legal arguments and whatever resources they have to ensure that there isn't any chance that even one of these lawsuits is going to go forward and actually have the threat of striking down this provision in the IRA. Well, Ananya, well, Ananya Kalahasti, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.